Well, if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to grab them out. We're going to go to the book of James. And interestingly enough, well, not interestingly enough, it's often the way the Lord does things. But we're going to begin this morning a bit of a journey through the book of James. I don't know whether you have the graphic in there, but it's a series title that I'm calling Bold Living. Bold Living. If there's two words that you could think of to describe this book, certainly as I prayerfully have considered this series, those were the two that jumped out at me because James is a bold man. He has a bold faith. His life is marked by boldness. One of the favorite descriptions of the uh, early New Testament disciples as people saw them, as they were proclaiming the gospel, as they were unafraid, as there was demonstrations of the power of God, they said, this has to be Jesus. We know they've been with Jesus because they're just simple, uneducated men, but they're living with such a boldness. So it's a book of boldness, but it's a book of living. He, he talks very practically about what, what does this life, this Christian life actually look like, practically speaking. And as Christelle has said, not just for young people, but it's an era where I think for a lot of us, we struggle to know how do we actually live out our faith actively? What does that look like in the day to day? And so we're going to go some interesting places, I hope. We're going to study this little book over the next few months together. And I'm praying that God for all of us, would stir our hearts, would give us greater boldness, but a greater passion and a greater capacity to really live well in an era that is desperately looking and longing for truth and for meaning and for something of worth. They're desperately in need of Jesus, even though perhaps they don't realize what it is that they're searching for. So let's pray, because that's not going to come, any of those things, from my wisdom or my ability, but I believe we have a big God. So Father, just thank you for the time we have this morning. Thank you for a new adventure in you. Thank you that we are your people, that you've called us by name, that you know each and every one of us, that there's no coincidence that we're here this morning. And thank you that you've brought us here for a reason that your desire is to move in our hearts and our lives, that your desire is to heal us up, your desire is to open our eyes, to see you in the fullness of who you are. Your desire is for us to stand as witnesses, as shining lights in an ever-darkening world. Thank you that you never leave us, forsake us. Thank you that you're with us. You're overshadowing us, Lord, even today. And I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that your words would bear fruit in our lives. Let them go deep. Let them accomplish all that you desire. Let your kingdom come. Let it be established in our lives, in this place, in our city. We pray that in the name of Jesus, the name above every other name. Amen. Amen. So Bold Living, sermon series through the book of James. Let's kick off together in chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it would be worth our while 
taking a moment to introduce and familiarise ourselves with who James is. There's actually at least four Jameses who are mentioned throughout the New Testament, over 24 references to Jameses. So who is this James? Well, sparing you a whole lot of research and church history, we can say with pretty much unanimous certainty that the James that we're referring to is in fact the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So in the interest of time, let's just accept that. If you don't agree with me, you can go and do your own research and tell me all your reasons for why it in fact is a different James. But that's the consensus. So based upon that, we have here a letter written by one of the half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We suspect that probably he may well have been the, the eldest as he heads the list in Matthew 13.55, which mentions four brothers and some sisters. So this is a big family. Mary and Joseph, obviously Jesus was born, conceived in a virgin, but they went on, we believe, to have a big family. Six, seven kids, possibly more. And we see James himself very prominently featuring throughout the New Testament church. He becomes one of the key figures in the Jerusalem church, Acts 15, the who's who of Christendom in that day. They gather together, so-called Jerusalem council, and Paul's there sharing about preaching to the Gentiles, all the miracles that he's seen, even his handkerchief is healing people. Who wants some of those testimonies? Bring it on, Lord. Peter's sharing about, well, my shadow is healing people. So I don't know, I don't know who got more uh, brownie points there. But even in the midst of that discussion, they're sharing the good works of God. And it's James who stands up and he says, here's what we need to do. So he had a very important role in the midst of the Jerusalem church. Some believe he was perhaps even the head of the church in Jerusalem. Paul called him a pillar of the church, Galatians 2.9. He went to see James a number of times, Galatians 1.19 being an example. And when Peter was rescued from prison, talking about another amazing testimony of the Lord as the angel turns up, sets him free, he doesn't even realize it's happening, he thinks it's all a dream, all of a sudden he's been set free. The first thing when he comes to himself is he says, go and tell James, go and tell James. So he is a person of prominence, he's a person who grew up with Jesus, perhaps more insight into who he is than certainly than many other people. But as interesting as who he was, was his journey. And we won't turn there, but John chapter 7, it reveals to us, and this is a commonly held belief, specifically says there that at that particular point in ministry, his brothers didn't believe in who Jesus was. In Mark 3, verse 21, there's an account there where it actually says the brothers, it doesn't mention who they were, but some of his brothers went to find Jesus because they believed that he was out of his mind. And you've got to put yourself in their shoes for a moment to understand what had gone on. We don't know much about the early life of Jesus, but he'd grown up. We presume just Mary knew, Joseph knew, she treasured these things in her heart. But he grew up living a normal life. He worked for his dad. He got his apprenticeship. Just normal, everyday, young person's life. I mean, I think of that picture and I think, imagine the humility of God. I mean, it's amazing that he came at all, isn't it? But that he came and for 30 years of his life, he just lived as we would live. He lived in our shoes. 
He struggled with what we struggle with. Like he knows our humanity. When he says he knows us, he really knows what it is like to live in our shoes. Not just because he's omniscient and he's sovereign and he knows everything, but because he's walked where we have walked. He's lived a life of humanity. So we see as he begins his ministry, Mark 3.21, I mentioned his brothers are there, fascinating account, and all of a sudden they see this guy that they'd grown up with living a normal life and he's proclaiming himself to be God. I mean, put yourself in that position for a moment. That's going to cause you a little mental gymnastics. That's going to require you to rearrange your thinking a little bit. They're saying, hang on a second, he must be out of his mind because he's claiming to be God. I love what C.S. Lewis says about the claims of Jesus. He said, this is the thing we have to recognize about Jesus. There is no middle ground. Either he is who he said he is, and it should be believed with every fiber of our being, or he's not and he's a liar, and he should be resisted vehemently with everything. There's no middle ground. Either he's God, or he is a man who lives in deception. So something happened in the life of James, and all of this, by the way, is relevant. I'm giving you this background because it sets the scene, I believe, for this letter that he pens. And something happened in his life, 20, perhaps 30 years. We don't know exactly the age different, how old he might have been, but something has transpired. Something has happened from him moving from this place of, he's out of his mind. I know this guy. He just lived as a normal human, and now he's claiming to be God. Something had taken him from a place of unbelief to belief. And not just belief, he becomes one of the most prominent figures in the church. Now, we don't know exactly what it was, but we do know in Acts 1.14 that it specifically mentions that Jesus, after he is resurrected from the dead, he meets personally with James. And I love all these pictures that we get of Jesus. We don't know it, but many people believe that it was very possibly that one encounter that was the catalyst for James to say, I believe in him. I mean, let's be honest. If you saw someone dead hanging on a cross and then he appears in your bedroom, that's going to stir you up a little bit. That's going to cause you to think a little more deeply than perhaps you had before. But I love this picture of a God who he's not put off by our doubts. He's not put off by our wrestling and by our struggles. Instead, he comes right into the midst. He personally appears to his doubting brother. And he doesn't say, I mean, a poetic license here, I don't know exactly what he says. But he doesn't come in that place to accuse him, to say, you of all people should have known best. You grew up with me 20, 30 years. You heard me, you saw the miracles. You doubting fool. He comes into his doubt, into his struggle. And he says, here you go, James, take a look for yourself. And certainly we know coming out the other side, because straight away from the book of Acts, as the, the Pentecost 
Sunday occurs as the Holy Spirit's poured out, as everything's going on, there he is, boldly standing and proclaiming the glory of his God. And that's how he introduced himself, James, a servant of God. Isn't that wonderful? That's the backstory behind that. He goes on to call him the glorious Lord. He's, he's my Lord. I'm just his servant. I'm not his brother. I'm just his servant. And let me just make this one observation. I, I believe for us as well, because let's be honest, there are wrestles and there are doubts and there are moments of uncertainty. But there's something, as I believe was in the case of James, that gives us great assurance. It gives us great certainty that when we are in those moments of doubt, that when we're in those moments of, of wrestling and struggle, that we can go. Can you guess where it is? We come and gaze upon the empty tomb. You see, so often, and, and, and I hear this all the time, perhaps you do, particularly from people who are away from God, who are wrestling through, do I even believe in him? You'll hear, you know what? If God could just show me, if he could just prove, like, I need some proof. I need some evidence. If God really is real, why hasn't he shown himself? And I hear that and I think, well, just, just hang on a moment. <laughs> What else could God possibly do? What greater sign could he ever possibly give to you and I? A demonstration of his love and a proclamation of his power. Then God himself, he bankrupts heaven. He puts on flesh. He lives in humility. He lives a perfect life. He dies in our place. He says, for God so loved, this is all about his love. This is to demonstrate his eternal love for you. And then he rises from the dead to forever proclaim that he was who he said he was and that he came to do what he said he would do. What a reality we have to base our faith upon. It's not wishful thinking, it's based upon the reality if that happened. And here is one statement, I love this, N.T. Wright, probably one of, if not the most prominent New Testament scholars of our day. Extensive, extensive research, including one book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. He makes this statement. He says, I challenge anybody to look into the resurrection of Jesus. He said, I'm convinced that there's overwhelming almost undeniable historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A scholar. Challenge anybody to look into the resurrection of Jesus because if that happened, if that really occurred, then there's a foundation for us that any time we doubt, we're going back there. Any time we wonder, does he really care? Is he really real? Does he really love me? Just look to the cross. Gaze upon all the Savior accomplished for you and I. And then rejoice in the empty tomb. Because 
he rose again. You see, here is the point. As we launch into this book, as we look at James and who he was and the little bit of his story that we know from Scripture, he is a real person who dealt with real issues, came to real faith and found real hope, discovering real life in a real Saviour. That's what I love about James. He's not your cookie-cutter perfect guy, always got it right. He lived in doubt for 20, 30 years, who knows. And then the Lord encountered him radically, is the word. The Lord encountered him radically. A real man dealing with real issues, coming to real faith and finding real hope, the real life that's offered through the real Saviour. Now, to me, that frames what James is going to write about. So let's go on. We've covered one verse. Bear with me. Picking up pace. Half a verse. So James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. He says, hi. And then he's into it. Everybody's favorite verse. Who's got this on a fridge somewhere? You just love this verse. You hang on to it. Count it all joy, my brothers, sisters, family, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's kind of the one that you skip along really quick, isn't it? Can we just get to the next bit? Count it all joy. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And let me just give you one more verse. We're going to Fill in the gaps, but there's a parenthesis here. Why is steadfastness so important? There was an answer there. Well, let me give you another one. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who serve him. That wasn't the passage. To those who fulfill their religious duty. For those who struggle and strive really hard. It says, for those who love him. Who love him. We're going to camp there in a moment, but let, let me get there. So, what is it that James begins his letter with? And let's just compare this for a moment. If you've been around over the last couple of years, we've studied some different books. We looked most recently at 1 John, and he just has this poetical, mystical way of expressing his faith, doesn't he? He begins his, his book with this wonderful poem almost, that which we heard from the beginning, looked on with our eyes, made manifest, the Son of God, just this, this flow, linguistical, poetics, wonderful. Peter we looked at, first Peter prior to that, and he begins with this, this praise song as he begins his book. He says, praise God who's Born us, he's, he's caused us to be born again, to living hope, to incorruptible inheritance, to unquenchable joy. There's some amazing introductions to letters. And yet James takes a different tack, doesn't he? It's not poetic and mystical. It's not praise. It's just bang. There it is. Count it joy in the midst of trials. He's just like, guys... Life happens. Here's what I want to say to you. Life happens. And it keeps happening 
And just to let you know, it will continue to happen until we go to be with Jesus or Jesus returns for us. You see, here I think is James's heart. Sometimes we have this tendency. It's very easy to focus on the salvation of God and his mercy and his majesty, and we should never forget about that. And what happens? We believe and then we go to heaven. And that's wonderful. Let's focus on that. Sometimes we just sort of forget what's between the parentheses. Let's just go for those bits. That's more comfortable. That preaches a better sermon. And James, in his pastoral heart as the leader of the church, is like, no, hang on. That's wonderful. That's good. And he's not denying any of that. But he's like, I want to jump in the middle and I want to talk about that and life. Because... You do get it. I get this, this often as a pastor. You hear Christians and they're like, well, you know, I believe in Jesus and I know I'm going to heaven. And I just thought that life was, I was going to use another expression that was used on Friday night, but I won't. I'll move on for those who are there. It's just walking on rainbows. It's just fields of roses. You know, you just wake up and you smell the morning and joy fills my heart and We just float on a cloud to heaven. And the problem is that there's hopefully seasons where there's just wonderful, great joy, blissful circumstances. But the reality is that life is messy, that stuff happens. And James, in all of his passion as a pastor, he says, guys, we need to sit down and we need to have a talk about life, real people dealing with real issues, coming to real faith in a real Savior. Let's not be afraid of the wrestle. Let's jump into the midst of it and see what the gospel says, see what God has for us, see how it is that we don't live in denial that it's ever happening or worst case, as is often the reality, fall apart as soon as we face any form of trial. But we embrace it, we know that God's with us, we know that he's working through it, and we live effectively in the midst. See, I believe that being a Christian, it, it, it doesn't make the storms any less or of a lesser level, any fewer or less severe, let's put it that way. It doesn't at all, but it changes the way that we stand in the midst of the storm. See, James never says here, all your problems are going to go away. Count it all joy because God's going to just deal with everything and you'll never have any battles to fight. You'll never have any valleys to go through. He never promises that circumstances will change, but he says, I guarantee you will. And there's a reality for the believer that we can stand in the midst of the fiery furnace. And as the world looks in wonder, they're like, hang on a second, they're not being burnt. Like not even a hem of their garment is on fire. And, and as they look closer, they say, and yet there's somebody else in there with them. And it's one like the Son of Man. That's the promise for the believer, that when we stand, we stand firm, that we endure, that the fire will not burn us, and that we will be a blazing witness and testimony to the world of the goodness and the power of God.
Someone's excited. The rest of us, hopefully, will catch up as we go along. So I want to give us, just on that one passage there, just setting the scene as we kind of launch into this particular book, I want to give us two really quick keys, and they'll be quick, I promise, about how it is that we can stand in the midst of trials, in the midst of the stuff. When life happens, and if it's not happening now, it will. Just wait. Give it a week. Life is going to happen. Two realities that are in this particular passage here. First of all, let's look at it again a little bit closer. James is saying you've got to realize, number one, that there is a process. That there's a process. Count it all joy. Why? Because when there's trials of various kinds, you know that the testing... Let's talk about that word for a moment. This is not test as in sitting in a room and you're getting marked on an exam. Perhaps a better translation would be proving. It's an ongoing proving. The proving of your faith produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness, as it has its full effect, will lead us to being perfect. And again, perfect here, we often have this misnomer. We think of perfect in our usage of the word as something that's gone from being imperfect, imperfections, to without imperfections. Whereas perfect in a biblical sense means having its full effect, going from small to complete. So effectively what James is saying is you've got to realize that there is a process in life. The trials are necessary and almost essential because it's not when things are going well, but it's things are, that when things are going bad that you need to exercise your faith. That's when you learn how to pray. That's when you learn how to trust, when you've got nothing else to trust. But it's a process. It's little bit by little bit when steadfastness has its effect. The picture that I love to use is, you know, we're like little kids. We've got a big daddy, and he's walking alongside us. And so often with my little kids, it could be when they're learning to walk, it could be where they're going through an uncertain area. You know, there's, there's a, a hesitation. They're like, I, I don't know, I don't know if I can do this. And it's just one step at a time. So often you see them as you take the first step, it's like, oh, I get this. I get this, I can see this. And then one step leads to another step, and then another step. And then before you know it, they're like, well, I don't even need you anymore. I'm off. Like, hang on a second. You've got a few more lessons to learn. Just come back here. And that's another sermon for another day. But this sermon is about the process. It's in those moments where we really learn to trust in God. Those moments reveal what we really need. We need him, and as we trust in him, it has its full effect, and it leads to steadfastness. Let's quickly move on, because I want to get this second one in here. The second key is this. So first of all, it's recognizing that there is a process. And key number two is never losing sight of his promise. Never losing sight of his promise. Why is steadfastness important? He says here, blessed is the man, is the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test of time, 
he will receive the crown of life which God has promised. Never lose sight of his promise. And who does he promise it to? To those who love What is our natural response whenever we're faced with trials? Well, let let me give you mine. (laughs) Because there could be a number. What's the natural response when you go and you get that bad prognosis? The doctor's office. Anxiety, uncertainty, fear, sheer terror. What is the response when something that's out of your control happens. Our natural response is to be gripped by the problem and to be gripped by fear. And I've discovered that there's only one thing when you're faced with trials that will see you through. There's only one thing. And it's that we need a promise that is bigger than the problem. Here's my one example, and I've shared this a few times recently in different settings. You've probably heard it again, but it's the thing that the Lord uses to speak to me. But I remember when we were, my wife and I were pregnant, halfway through our first pregnancy, and we got what no parent wants in the midst of all the excitement of a child on the way. We went in for a regular checkup, and they gave us less than 5% chance of our little baby girl making it alive out of the womb. And, and you know, this is, let's come back to that for a moment. But I was just thinking this week in, in light this year of some of the stuff that's going on around the sanctity of life. You know, my wife and I, whenever we hear anything to do with that, I tell you what, it just absolutely breaks our heart. Because we were in the hospital at 27 weeks, and we had at that stage, uh, long story short, my wife spent most of the rest of the pregnancy in hospital, and every day they'd give us what they called a 4D scan. I don't even know what a 4D is, but it was amazing. We could see everything going on there, and because of the urgency, because of the uncertainty, we'd named this little girl, we knew um, what we were going to call her if she did live, and every day, and you know, there was moments I, I... swear that I could see her waving to me. Now she'd look, she, she would genuinely respond to our words as we talked to her. And I tell you what, we, we wept for that child and we prayed and we pressed in. And then to think that there was people in that same hospital and certainly throughout the world that would go in at the very same stage of pregnancy to end that little baby's life. I tell you, just... It absolutely broke my heart. My wife couldn't even hear anything about it for months afterwards because she was broken. That's another side. You know, if, if we're not moved by some of the issues that are going on in our world and if we're not moved to prayer and if we're not moved to press in, particularly on behalf of those who cannot press in for themselves, then something's going on. Something's going on. Can I get, get off that? I always, that's a sermon for another day. So we're in the midst of this place and uncertainty. The very first night, you get the prognosis. I'm in the car. I remember so well. I was heading down, stopped at the traffic lights in Hindmarsh Drive, just crying out 
to the Lord, God, what is going on? I don't understand this. I mean, you promised his children as a child and you're now going to take this child's life away from us. Is she going to live? Is she going to die? All of the wrestling, the fear, absolute sheer terror gripping, gripping a hold of me. And in that moment, clear as anything I've ever heard from the Lord, the Lord speaks to me and he says, Andrew, do you trust me? And that was it. For God, is that all? That all? And, and I knew exactly what I thought in the moment. This is revealing my heart. I think I even said it aloud. I said, well, God, tell me what's going to happen, and then I'll tell you if I'm going to trust you. Anyone been in that place? Like, I want to anchor my trust into an outcome, into what I feel is right. And God's saying, no, that doesn't work that way. You've got to anchor your hope into my promise into who I am. Do you really believe that I'm good? Whether your little baby lives or whether she dies, whether I call her home, whether you're blessed with her company in this life, do you believe truly that I am good? And is that enough? See, we've got to anchor into his love, into his promise, into who he is. Fear keeps us gripped by problems, but love keeps us aware of his presence. Fear reminds us of what we don't have. Love is the present reality resting in what we do. Fear keeps us buffeted by the waves of uncertainty, but love is the anchor of our souls. That's why Romans 8.31, he says, what do we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? When the heart is anchored in the one thing that is eternal, the promise of his love, of eternal life then there is nothing that can stop it, no evil can quench it, no enemy can thwart it, no problem can hinder it. How can we be defeated when that promise of his eternal love is our reality, when we're anchored into him? If you want to live a bold life, if you want to live effectively, if you want to live as a burning witness for God, if you want to live strong under temptation and the trial, you've got to firstly know where to anchor your soul. And there's only one anchor that will remain. I just want to finish as we bring this to a conclusion. I had a little, uh, a little note that was written by my little girl. Interestingly enough, it was the same girl that I was just sharing. I wasn't planning on sharing that little one. And I, uh, I opened up my device. I've got a little notes application that I use to keep all my notes, to-do lists, all that sort of thing. And I'm not quite sure how she accessed it. That part was a little concerning because it was password protected and I only have one password. It's the same for bank accounts and for if you get that one password, you've you got access to, to everything, to me. So putting aside the, uh, the moment of terror, I opened up my computer this week and there was a little note that she left me. And rather than just telling you, I thought I'd show you the little note if we can get it up there. Is it ready to go? It's half there. I'm not sure if it's going to come across. We tried to get it on there this morning. Let's see if they can fix it up. But it said, Dear Daddy, I love you. I love you more than the stars in the sky. And 
You can half see it. There's some love hearts. There's a a lovely little self-portrait there. There it is. A smiling little budding artist. I tell you what, I got that note from my little girl this week. And I cannot tell you how much that blessed my heart. And I just, you know, it it, it made me think. as, As I was so moved by that, I thought all the obedience in the world, all of the everything else, you know, nothing compares to that little note of her expressing her love to me. And I thought as well, and I felt like God challenged me. You know, if, if you, Andrew, and I'll ask you this same question, if you were to write a note to the Lord, what would your note look like? Because to be perfectly honest, mine would look very different than this. Often. Sometimes it would be a list of my problems. Dear God, let me just give you my top ten list of everything that's going wrong with my life. Of all these issues. God, are you even listening? God, where are you? Are you serious? Can you hear my prayers? Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with getting real with God. I think it's good to get real with God. I know sometimes it would be a completely different note. Sometimes it would be a note of performance. But dear God, just letting you know all the good things that I've done this week. I've lived really well. I've been mainly on the straight and narrow. I really think I've earned a few brownie points. You know, I feel like maybe you owe me a little bit now. I've done, you know, I've really, I've really done a good job. But here's my encouragement for us. You know, what is it truly that we anchor our lives in? Do we anchor our lives in our performance? Do we anchor our lives in the midst of our problems? I'm as good at that one as anybody I know. It's a talent. Or is there a place where we are just so anchored You know, I've I've tried this a few times this week. It feels really good. God, here I am. And I just want to tell you how much I love you. I am so grateful for your love. You could have given up on me so many times. And yet, your love's never failed me. You've lifted me up when I've fallen down. You dust me off. You don't turn me away. You're always standing there with wide open arms, just calling me to come. And I think, how, how dumb am I to anchor my life in so many other things? God, keep me there because that's where I want to live. And that's the secret to a bold, unchanging life. Can we pray? Is there someone who can come and play for us? Just close your eyes and let's just give the Lord room to do whatever he wants. Father, thank you for the power of your words. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that's able even right now to pierce through the hardest heart to reach us where we need to be reached. And Father, we 
we know and, and we acknowledge that this is a critical hour in our nation, in the nations around the world. Lord, that things are shaking, that things are happening. There's fear, there's uncertainty, there's doubts. And yet for me, God, all I know is that you continue. I just cannot seem to get away from this invitation, but it's more than an invitation. It's a, it's a command that we must be anchored. We must be anchored in your love. Before we do anything else, before we say anything else. And so, Father, I just pray that there would be a moment between each of us and you. Maybe just that picture, Lord, of if we were to write you a little love note this week, what would it look like? And maybe for some of us, Lord, we would realize that, you know what, I would. I, I just, I'm so anchored in my problems that I've lost sight of his promise. Maybe for some of us, it would be, well, I, I, I am, I'm just so anchored in my performance. Father, I pray that, that where you need to, you would minister to each of our hearts this morning. We invite you, Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do. Come and soften our hearts. Come and mold us and make us yours. Come and love on us. Come and just overshadow us with your mercy and your grace. Come and break off the hardness. Lord, give us a heart of flesh rather than the heart of stone. Father, give us courage, particularly for those in the midst of trials, a courage to trust you, that we would consider it a joy when we only have you left because you will never let us down. You'll never fail us. Pray for fresh fire, God. Just come and burn up the apathy and all the stuff, God, that, that just distracts us from you. Breathe your breath of life upon us, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. You know, there's an opportunity this morning you're very welcome just to sit there and just to sense that the Lord is ministering to people's hearts and that's great but it's good to respond so if you want to come and kneel at the front the altar's open you can come and do that and if you kneel at the front nobody will pray for you that's just your way of saying here I am God but there may well be others as well who you've come this morning for prayer needs you'd love someone to stand in prayer with you so if you come and stand we've got a prayer team here and we would love nothing more than to stand with you and to pray about any and every prayer need. If you need physical healing, if you need courage to stand, if you whatever it is, there's a power in praying for one another 
So now's the time. The service is over. Go in peace when you're ready. But don't go until you've done whatever business you you know you need to do with the Lord. Come and kneel if you want to. Come and stand for prayer. Bless you this week. Amen. And can we just get the prayer team to come as well? That would.